Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is almost like eavesdropping. This has been happening now for roughly two years. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California for this, the 200th episode of the program. Episode 200, kind of a milestone, uh, kind of hard to believe that it just keeps going, this project. I keep doing it. I keep talking into this microphone. And, uh, you know, I've been at this now for nearly 24 months, two shows a week. And to be honest with you, I didn't think it was going to last this long. I sort of thought when I was starting out that it would be, I don't know, like a six-month endeavor and then it would quietly fade. But uh, then I found uh, that I liked doing it and that having these conversations was enjoyable and uh, edifying. And I found that people out there were listening and liking the program. And uh, here we are two years later. And I now find myself wondering, uh, is it ever going to end? Am I going to be 80 
and still doing this? Is this my life? So uh, thank you to everyone out there who's been with me for the past two years or uh, for some portion of the past two years. I hope you know how much I appreciate it. And uh, I want to express my thanks as well to uh, all of the dozens of writers who have been kind enough to spend some time talking with me. Uh, Obviously, there's no show without them. And, uh, you know, there's no show without you either, like the, the listener. And that needs to be said, because when you do one of these things, you realize pretty quickly that you have to have people listening. Otherwise, it's just sad. <laughs> in fact, I, f- I kind of feel like there, there might be a book in that. There has to be a podcast. There, there's probably many podcasts out there with no listeners. I feel like maybe someone should make a documentary about that or write a book about it. So uh, with that in mind, I want to offer special thanks to listeners who have spread the word about the show, who have blogged about it, who have uh, reviewed the show on iTunes, who have shared news of the show via email, uh, via conversation, via social media. That is really the key. It's the lifeblood uh, of any podcast or any media enterprise, really, in this day and age. Without that kind of support and enthusiasm from people listening, uh, it's hard to grow the audience and to get people aware and paying attention because... There's obviously a ton of noise out there, and uh, with this in mind, I'm really proud of the fact that uh, this program has been able to find an audience and has been able to uh, grow its audience. And uh, it makes me feel good that in some small way, this show has been able to help uh, writers connect with uh, other people. Get it? to help them connect with readers and, you know, to, uh, to help advance the cause of books and literature a little bit and so on. So, you know, I look at the numbers, uh, the the hundreds of thousands of downloads that have happened over the past two years. It's, it's a little bit hard for me to believe, and I'm very grateful for it. So if you're a fan of the show and uh, if you'd like to help mark the moment and celebrate a little bit, uh, episode 200, The best thing you can do, talk about the show. Let people know. Tell them to listen. Tweet about it. Facebook it. uh, Review the show on iTunes. All of that stuff means a lot to me. It's very important to uh, the future of the show, and it really does help. So thanks again, everybody, for listening and for offering your kind support. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Susan Orlean. I'm really pleased to have her here on the program. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine who was famously played by Meryl Streep in the Spike Jones film Adaptation. Perhaps you've seen that. In addition to her acclaimed work as a journalist, Susan is a best-selling author of several books, including Saturday Night, The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, My Kind of Place, The Orchid Thief, and most recently, Rin Tin Tin, which was a New York Times bestseller. So here we go, folks. Episode 200. This is my conversation with the wonderful Susan Orlean. I'm optimistic. In fact... I think that this is probably the best time for long-form journalism that we've seen in in decades. You know, the whole issue of length is a fabricated one. I mean, people write stories, um, the length is needs time. Right. But as far as the actual published story... The only thing that limits length in print um, publication is that it costs money. Right. So when you have a magazine that every page is being paid for, you can't say to people, go ahead, 30,000 words, because you need to have advertising to buy those pages. It's, it's just really a very simple calculus. With the Internet and with electronic publishing – it doesn't matter anymore. Length doesn't have any meaning. And I still think you need a lot of time to do stories that are long. The difference in writing a story that's 30,000 words and one that's 3,000 words is you sure better have put in a whole lot more time doing the reporting and doing the the writing and the structuring. And what about like editorial? You know, because... I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I imagine you have a lot of editorial input and back and forth when you're doing a piece for The New Yorker. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the story, the thing with The New Yorker is the writers really direct their own work. I mean, we come up with our own ideas in the course of reporting. If we have a question that we want to go to our editor and say, you know, I'm trying to decide whether to interview this guy or not, the editor is always there to bounce ideas off of, but you're expected to kind of do your own work and figure out how you want to do your work. That's interesting and I, I, that they ha- you guys have that much autonomy. Oh, we really do. In fact, I think if you were constantly calling and saying, you know, should I go do this for the story or not? There might be some question about whether you're in the right place. Well, and you know, it also makes sense to me now, or it occurs to me now that if you're, you you can't be in a situation where you're constantly asking for permission, because if you're going to write good stuff, you have to be permitted to follow your passions and your instincts. Well, I think that instinct is the important word. I mean, if you don't have the instinct for what the proper sort of set of inquiries to make to make a story work, then maybe you're in over your head or maybe you don't exactly know how to how to produce a piece of writing. In fact, 
The New Yorker is so hands-off that when I first came to the magazine, which was a long time ago, I can't believe it, but it was. I mean, my first piece was published in 1986, and those were Talk of the Town pieces, and then I did my first long piece in 87, and... How did you get your foot in the door? It's a really uh, a story without any magic. I put together my clips and sent them in. <laughs> and then I would like to say that there was a some sort of, you know, remarkable story behind it. But that that was the story. It's very, I mean, in a way, it's more magical because there was absolutely nothing except this pure, there was a moment where I thought, you know, I've been dreaming of writing for the New Yorker my whole life. I'm just going to pull the trigger and send my stuff and who did, you, who, did, who did you send it to? Did you have? I mean, was it just like the managing editor or the? Editor? I just dropped them off. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know anybody at the magazine. As nobody knew anybody because there was no masthead, as is still the case. I had heard third hand that they might be hiring more writers to do talk of the town, and I thought this is my moment. I think I may have called and said can I, I'd like to bring my clips. So now that I think about it, I might've talked to somebody who said, okay, sure, bring them in, they but not that. like, oh yes, bring them in. <laughs> but you know, here's, it, it, look up the address. And if you want to come, you know, that's your problem. Right. And I brought the stuff in. I dropped them off at the front desk with the receptionist who was incredibly unwelcoming. And it's very funny because she became a really good friend of mine, but she was <laughs> totally unwelcoming. I thought I would show up and maybe they would invite me in and introduce me around and say, thank you for bringing you that. No, it was just leave them there. Right, and you can and you can go now. And it's like a big pile. <laughs> yeah, so it was not a very encouraging um, initial encounter. But I, I got a call back, and the editor said, um, "Why don't you come in tomorrow and we can talk about what you have in mind?" Timing matters. It in, does. In life. It do, well, it, yeah, it matters on both sides. It was the timing. The magazine was good because, in fact, there were some changes underway. I didn't know that except this third hand mention that maybe they'd be hiring some people. But it was a good moment. And for me, the timing was good because I think I was ready. Um, well, I guess that's sort of self evident, but I didn't, I, I really didn't want to send my clips in too soon when they weren't really ready to be considered because I thought if I do it and they say, no, that's it. It's awfully hard to come back right. a year later or six months later. So I, I just felt like I had to feel that I was really ready. Well, and but I, my I think work was ready. I think that's a that's a mark, a mark of a good writer, uh, or one of the marks of, of a good writer is somebody who has uh, the ability to accurately appraise their own work. Yeah, and yeah. to not overestimate it, to know when it's ready to submit, whether it's a book for publication or it's clips for a magazine or whatever it is. And I think sometimes, you know, I certainly understand the emotional impulse 
to submit because you want that, you know, you want to know it's there. You want to have that experience. You want to get hired. You want to write for the magazine. And so you sort of have to work against that. And yeah. You, you know. Well, I think that it it's something that then comes up with your own writing, which is you have to be, you have to develop the ability to look at your own work and say, this part is good. This part, not so good. Right. I'm always suspicious when people say to me, oh, my editors, they're such idiots and they're always cutting out all the good stuff. And I think, really? <laughs> you know, because in my experience, granted, I've had good editors, but also I feel like even when it's hurt and I've thought, wait, that was my favorite part. I, it, it, I have come to appreciate the, the sort of um, surgical sculpting of stories and and I'm actually a pretty good editor of myself I I mean even when it's stuff I've really loved and felt went just worked so well when I look at an overall effect in a story I am I am not shy to say I'm cutting this well you this know this isn't that good well, I was thinking the other day about, or I was talking, I think, on the monologue for this show about how it doesn't get easier to write. And no, it gets every time, yeah, every time you sit down, it's like you're starting from scratch. But maybe because I was, I was contemplating whether or not you ever get better, and maybe you don't get better at writing, but maybe you get better at editing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think, I think you have a natural voice that is just you can get better at making making that come out on the page but i think you have just you're sort of born hardwired to write in a certain way i think you can get better at reporting definitely and you can get um through experience i think you can learn to be a little more confident to try things that you wouldn't have tried otherwise but i feel like at the end of the day you still sound like yourself. And I don't think that changes. I think you just get better at presenting that more authentically. Knowing when you sound too much like yourself. Right. And then, I mean, and sometimes that's very disheartening because there are times where you think, I wish I really sounded different on the page, but chances are you're never going to really sound different. You're going to Unless you completely fake it, in which case it's not going to sound like you. And it's not going to read well. Yeah. You know, so. But I think, I do think it gets harder, which is sad. And, you know, a lot of people find this very bad news. But I, I remember at one point at the magazine seeing Roger Angel, the extraordinary, you know, one of the greats of the New Yorker. And he was sort of moping around one day at the office. And I said to my editor, why is Roger so grumpy? And he said, oh, you know, he's having a really hard time with a piece. And I said, Roger Angel has a hard time with a piece? <laughs> right. How I, how can this be? And he said, I hate to tell you, but it doesn't get easier. And some people would argue that it gets harder because your own standards get higher your fear of repeating yourself gets uh more punishing and i i just think in general um it doesn't get easier right 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's good news no. for everybody. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really maybe it's good news because then you know not to expect it to get easier. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and and I think that the nature of beginning with a blank slate and I was, you know, I was reading um an interview that you did and you were talking about the process of self-doubt that you go through pretty much with every single piece that you take on where it's like this flirtation where you're like, I like it. This sounds good. I can't do that. And then you kind of yeah. go back to it. You sort of do this dance and uh, then, and then you say to yourself, I'm going to write it. It's going to be really short. It'll be easy. And then all of a sudden you're in the weeds and it's like, you know, however many thousands of words, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's something that, um, a friend once said to me, I, I didn't understand. I hadn't had that arm's length perspective to say, wow, I kind of go through this every time I write and finally, I, you know, I was saying to a friend, I don't know, this idea is so stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. I, who cares? Who's going to care? I, I don't know how to write this. And she said to me, you know, this is your thing, right? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you, do you realize you go through this <laughs> every time you write? And not that it's any less real, but it was funny where I thought, wow, this really is... Um, part, I mean, it must be that I just go through this emotional kind of wrangling with stories and I don't even realize it's so real that I don't even realize, you know, I, I don't look back and think, oh yeah, this is just like what I went through with that one. Cause each time it seems more real and you think, no, this one's real. Right. Last time I was just nervous. This one, <laughs> this is real. This one's like the one where I fall apart and I can't do it. And there's a lot of wear and tear with that just psychologically. So one of the other ways it gets harder is that if you go through, uh, and I think a lot of people go through that, by the way, but I, um, I think then each time you go through that cycle of thinking, ah, oh, this isn't going to work. I don't know why I thought this was such a good idea. It's sort of exhausting. And then, you know, to go through it again, you think, oh my God, I can't stand this. Well, I, well you know what's required. It's a huge commitment to, yeah. do, you know, to dive in like that. And it's just like having a baby, you know, when you are about to have your first baby and everybody can say to you, wow, it's really, you know, childbirth is really tough. And you think, you know, it's a great unknown. And then in the middle of labor, you say, I'm never having another baby. Just, this is it. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is horrible. I'm never going to do it. And the minute the baby's born, you say, oh, let's have another one. Right, right. right. Instant amnesia. Right. You're just, because it's, something happens in your brain that makes you forget how tough it was. And of course the outcome is very satisfying, you know, same with having a kid. Then suddenly you think, wow, well, I have a kid. All right. It was, you know, nine months of being pregnant and, you know, 24 hours of labor, but wow, I have a kid now. I, well, let's do that again. Sure. Of course I only have one kid. So <laughs> evidently that didn't happen for me, but, um, I think that, Creating something that doesn't exist, which is really what writing requires, is a gigantic, multi-dimensional experience that's both intellectual and and 
creative, but it's in, it's very much emotional and psychological. This kind of, I'm looking at a blank computer screen and in the foreseeable future, there will be an entire book there. Ah! <laughs> yeah. It's daunting. Yeah. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about how you got to the point where you're writing books, you're publishing for the New Yorker. And uh, specifically, I want to talk about how you built up to that moment when you had that, uh, you know, that experience at the New Yorker headquarters with your clips in hand and you felt like this is, this is the moment I'm ready to submit here. So you started as a reporter in Oregon, right? After college, I moved to Portland um, Why Portland? Just on a whim? I was following my boyfriend. Oh. I would like to say that I foresaw the brilliant future of Portland, Oregon, but that <laughs> it was just that I, my boyfriend was moving out there. I was, my plan was to take a year off before going to graduate school. I was, my parents really wanted me to go to law school. And even though I wanted to be a writer, I didn't know how you became a writer. And so their pressure, which was understandable, they just thought, look, you need Something. to have a, a marketable skill. You should go to law school. So, I mean, I had no interest in going to law school, but I had finally said, all right, look, I'll do it, but I want to take a year off. So I moved to Portland with my boyfriend and my plan was, I would just get some job. I was waitressing and I had actually applied for jobs as paralegals, which um, none of which were offered to me because I clearly had no interest or capacity for being a paralegal. But I heard that there was a little magazine starting. And I just thought, I don't know, I'm going to see if I can get an interview, even though I had no clips, no experience, nothing. I just had pure desire. I went to the interview. How did I, you get it? How did I get the interview? Yeah. Gosh, I, you know, I don't really know. I'm I'm not sure. I had like two clips and because I'd written two book reviews for my college paper. I don't know why they called me in for an interview. I had nothing really recommending me, but I went into the interview and I said, you know what? You've got to hire me. I, I have to have this job. I am, this is what I want more than anything. And to tell you the truth, if I were hiring and someone said that to me about being a writer, I would consider that the number one job requirement, namely that you are dying to do this. And because every step of the way, it's going to require that kind of passion and commitment. So even though they were kind of winging it, hiring me, it was not a bad choice, um, considering that I was that passionate. So I learned on the job. It was a, a little bit of a, um, it was sort of a magazine, monthly magazine. So we were writing not little spot news stories, but longer feature stories. Good, good training. It was great training. And I was sort of thrown in immediately being told, all right, come up with a story idea. God. And, you know, every now and again, I would think, God, if I had moved right to New York after college, I would have 
maybe gotten a job early on in a big magazine, but I would have been making coffee or filing or something. I mean, I would never have gotten a writing job. So this turned out to work very well for me because I immediately was writing. Not always very well, but I was writing and I was learning what it felt like to have an audience, which is something that really matters, you know, to go from college where you have an audience of one, namely your professor, to suddenly writing for uh, for publication and understanding that this is a medium of communication and not just that you're doing your homework. Well, but was, I think that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the key shifts is I think so many people sit down to write and they're writing for themselves or maybe they're writing to one person. But usually they're right. A lot of times people I think are writing to themselves and it, it, yeah. it takes a little work to get used to and to really understand, um, from the perspective of the reader. It's so critical. Yeah. And I think that that's why I, in the course of dispensing advice, which happens, I teach a fair amount. So it comes up a lot. I, I'm always discouraging my students from, um, just setting up a blog and the one of the reasons I have many reasons, but one reason is if they end up with a handful of readers, three readers, 10 readers, I mean, really blogs can be lost to the world. Yeah. They're going to be missing this really critical part of developing as a writer, which was, which is what I, experience right away. Namely, I'm writing for this group of readers. There's a, there are responsibilities and require requirements of the writing that are totally different from just writing your homework as uh, an essay for homework or writing a blog that you to have no idea if anyone reads. Mm. Well, and I think I, it's funny that I, something that just occurred to me as you were saying that is that I have a friend who just the other day I was talking to who's at the point where he's just about to submit and he's got this novel and you know, he has like his trusted three or four readers and he, he had, you know, handed them the manuscript and this is not the first time that he's had people read, but he's down to the wire now where it's going to go out. And now that it's real and it's going to be publicly read <clears throat> suddenly the editorial process he said became like hyper-focused for him. Yeah. And a lot more active because it was like, oh my God, like I'm actually talking to people and they're going to read this. Well, I think the critical thing, and it's the thing that I've thought about them so much in the last year is for me, the essential experience of writing is teaching. And that might sound kind of odd, but the way a teacher wouldn't stand alone in a room and teach their subject. A writer also the, the experience they should be having is not sitting alone in a room making pretty sentences, but instead being driven by this desire to communicate their story, the story to to teach people the story that they've learned. And it, it really has been transformational for me in terms of thinking about my work, because that's, to me, that's what it's about. Right. 
I mean, I go into stories not knowing anything. I go into them as a student. I'm going to learn everything I can learn about this subject. Then the writing process is I've become a teacher. I now am going to teach people what I've just learned. So it really is all about that transference of I absorbed all this information and now I'm going to dispense it, disperse it. Well, that, that makes sense to me. You know, and, and doing that without any sense of that mission of teaching what you've learned, I think completely changes everything. It changes how you write, what you write, your choice of words, the choice of structure, even questions about how do you make this story interesting. If you're not thinking about that group of students who you are teaching about the subject, it's really hard to think, okay, I've, I've got to make sure people stay engaged with this part of the story and then we're going to, I'm going to move them into this other part of the story that's a harder part or a sad part or, you know, it's going to be less sexy. So I need to write it in a way that keeps them really engaged and then, and then I'm going to change the tone and make it a little lighter. And, you know, there, there's, for me, that awareness is always there. How am I keeping people engaged? How am I keeping them interested so that I can successfully teach them well and clarity too i mean you know like you i think sometimes especially in early drafts and especially when someone is just talking to themselves it's like well i understand what i'm saying you right, know but when right, you but when exactly. you when you approach it from a teach you know that like to use your metaphor like when you approach it from a teaching perspective you know that you've got to really be clear and you've got to simplify yeah so that people will understand what you're saying well and so one of the huge questions that comes up all the time when people are structuring stories um is well how how much does the reader already know and how can i explain this cool part of the story without first explaining the background of the story and it's very it gets very confusing and the model that works is to imagine it as a conversation. You're saying to somebody, I just learned something really cool. Did you know that Rin Tin Tin is a real dog, not a 50s TV character? Really? Yeah, really. He was actually, believe it or not, born in 1918. You know, and you're experiencing their learning about the subject just the way the writer learned about the subject and... Because otherwise, you're so absorbed in knowing what you know that you've forgotten that people have no idea what you're talking about. Well, yeah. And it's also um, thinking like, you know, to continue with the teaching thing, there's a performative aspect to teaching. Absolutely. And there's a performative aspect to writing and storytelling that can sometimes get lost, you know? You have and to I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's the essence and that's what makes stories leap off the page is much the way if someone stood in front of a group and said, I just learned this really fascinating thing about a guy who just paints people who shop at Walmart. You know, the is that real? Might think, I did this. I did a story <laughs> oh, about okay. this for 
of the New Yorkers, I'm using myself as an example, but it, it's a performance. It just happens to be on the page. And, you know, some people can tell a story at a dinner table and it's just super boring. And you think, oh, my God, this will never end. And other people tell a story and you're completely engaged, even if it was a subject that you really didn't have a lot of interest in. That's writing. That's it. So, and, yeah. Did you, did you, how long did it take you to get to that? I mean, I guess you have a lot of instincts. It sounds like to me, you were uh, an enthusiastic student. Like, did you like school? Yeah, I did actually. I mean, I wasn't sort of a nerdy grind, but I, I liked school and I liked learning a lot. Um, like get, did you get good grades? Yeah, I did get good grades and I was, I mean, I, I wasn't the most diligent student, but I was, a. I definitely loved learning and I loved discovery, which is one aspect of learning, you know, just, I loved being surprised. I loved realizing there was some huge subject that I knew nothing about that was really interesting. Which totally translates to your work. I mean, actually, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's sort of, I've been doing the same thing for a long time, but, yeah. um, rather than being a deep expert on a very narrow field, I, I always liked learning about one thing and then learning about the next thing. And, exploring down one alley and and then moving on and exploring to the next. So it's sort of all that's always been the way that I've kind of processed the world. Well, I know now I'm thinking of like travel, which is another passion of yours. And I think that that sort of correlates as well. Yeah. You know, because I have the same I have a travel bug, too. Like there's nothing I like better than being someplace where I don't know where I am. You know, yeah. and just checking stuff out learning about and a know. lot of people don't like that they don't like to be disoriented yeah you know i sort of like being disoriented i don't like being uncomfortable or unhappy well, or right. but i'm i am sort of fascinated by having the rug pulled out from underneath me and feeling re like everything is different and um i What's funny is that in my personal life, I'm very rooted. I, you know, I, I really love my friends and my family and I'm, you know, I'm not a, a sort of solitary vagabond at all, but I, I am very interested in the experience of being out of my element. Um, when I was doing my first book, Saturday Night, which entailed traveling around the country for a couple of years, spending Saturday night in about 18 different kinds of communities where I was totally alone. I was the oddball. I was the odd man out. You know, I would be the one person in this group that wasn't familiar with it, you know, because that was what the book was about, about going into these subcultures there was a moment where I thought, my God, I really hate this in real life. I, you know, to go to a party where I'm all alone. I mean, who likes that? Nobody likes it. Right. But in my work, I, that's what I did. 
and I kind of love the idea that I could just walk into, you know, a Cajun um, Saturday night uh, Zydeco party where everybody knew each other and I was the one person who didn't know anyone who was completely on my own. And I, it's almost like sticking your hand over a candle because I think most people would run from those situations. And I would in my persona as, you know, Susan Orlean human. But when I'm out as a reporter, I think there's a, a way in which I feel almost invulnerable that I'm there and all those natural feelings of loneliness or awkwardness, self-consciousness, somehow I don't feel. You've got a job to do. Yeah. And I think that actually I, I read something recently that I thought was very interesting that it was about journalists who get killed in war areas and how you sometimes will read the stories of what they've done. And you think, why would they have done that? It's crazy. It's so dangerous. On one hand, you know that they're committed to getting the story. And so they're willing to, to take risks. But I also think that, um, there is a more dangerous component, which is they feel invulnerable. They feel like they are somehow shielded from the, the actual reality of the circumstances because they're, they, they are a reporter. They're on a mission. And things that if you ask them in their private life, would they have done that on a vacation? meet with the stranger, uh, and get in a car with them. I'm thinking about Daniel Pearl because a lot of people, a lot of people said, why did he, this guy was notoriously dangerous. Why would he get in the car? My guess is that you shut down a certain part of yourself of a certain vulnerable part of yourself when you're writing so that you can take those dives into the unknown. I, yeah. I mean, in my case, of course, I've never done anything. Well, I've done a few things that are, I mean, I've never been in a war zone. I've never exposed myself to that kind of danger. And I don't pretend that I would be brave enough to do that. But I've, you know, I've gone on hikes in the swamp with men I don't know. And I later think, whoa, that's <laughs> kind of crazy. Right. And then, but... And at the time, I don't even think, wow, I'm really being brave. It's just like, whoa, this is a good opportunity for my for my book. And, and there's kind of, I mean, I know at least with, uh, you know, war zones, there it's been talked a lot uh, about, I think, recently, or I've read about it, and uh, the Hurt Locker is sort of about this, but there's a high that yeah. you get, you know, from that sort of being out of your element, being alone. Totally. Traveling alone is similar, kind of a similar experience, like... It's totally different than traveling with a group or traveling with your family, right. especially if you're really out of your element. You know, uh, I don't know. It, it puts you in contact with people. It forces you to engage in a way that you might not otherwise engage. And, right. You know, it's the same kind of thing. It's such a different feeling. And, and you're right. I think there is a kind of high. And even in my, you know, very um, it, hardly traveling to Afghanistan and being uh, embedded with troops, but emotionally 
going into a strange situation all by yourself and sort of throwing yourself into it is very unnatural. It's what people avoid at all costs. So when you see yourself doing it, I mean, it really is like walking on coals, that same thing where you think, how can people do that? And you think because some part of your brain shuts down, like you're not going to experience those feelings of, of loneliness or awkwardness because you're, you've got a mission. You're walking across this bed of coals to get to the other side. And I think you feel kind of high seeing yourself do something that you know is difficult. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of thrilling in a way. And you're getting, you're getting the story, especially when it's going well, or, you know, you find just, it's almost like when things get weird, you're like excited. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. You think, whoa, this is completely, um, I mean, when a story sort of turns on you or starts falling apart, but you're scrambling and you feel like you're pulling it together, there is that feeling of you've mastered this bucking bronco and it, there is definitely a high in it. Are, are you, do you think that you're especially good or do you have like an aptitude for assimilation or blending? Like I remember reading an interview with Joan Didion where she was talking about, um, you know, how she approaches her work and how, uh, I don't know, because she's a really petite woman and she, I, I think people sometimes underestimated, um, the powers of her perception or she was blending or whatever it was, but you know, th- that's kind of a skill as a rep- uh, a repertorial skill, you know, yeah. part of being a good reporter is being able to be there, but not be, uh, too pronounced, yeah. you know, and, and making people feel like you're invading their space. But at the same time you have to engage, like, can you talk a little bit about the social dynamic of being in those moments? Yeah. Oh, well, I think that, um, first of all, that interview with Joan Didion was, is very interesting because she says that being small, being female, um, she could just sort of be in a room and not, not, and almost be invisible. Um, do you feel similarly? I do. I, I mean, I've always thought that women, and I should say, I should say for people listening that Susan is very petite as well. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I once had, um, I once did a story about Joan Didion that was kind of a goofy story, but I did it partly because I was excited to meet her about being petite. And um, I think, first of all, I think I'm actually very good at, at assimilating, at, at being um, in a group in, in, in which I am, entirely unlike the people and somehow through, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to attribute it to. I think, did you move around as a child? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, we, we lived in one place. Uh, we moved once about a mile and it was traumatic. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> oh my God, the mile. Um, so I'm not, you know, my husband was, uh, an army brat and moved a, a ton. And so, you know, I sometimes think, wow, it's so funny because he had that experience of being in 13 different places growing up. I was in one very rooted. That's why I'm saying it's sometimes interesting to me to think, how did I end up the way I am as a writer when in fact 
it doesn't seem like my upbringing or my life up until this point would have prepared me for it. But I think I'm, I'm very good at absorbing the environment and, and I think I'm a good empathizer. I, I think that and you're, you have to I'm be curious. non-judgmental, and I think that's probably my ace in the hole, is that I am really non-judgmental. And so when I go into a situation to write about it, I do not have an agenda. My interest is, this is an interesting story, I want to learn about it. I, whether the people are rich, poor, black, white, gay, straight, I don't care. I'm I'm just curious. I just want to learn. And... I think people sense when you have come without an agenda. I think people are very good at figuring that out. And and because it's really true. I I have no preconceived idea of what I want out of a story. I've just gotten interested in something and I want to learn about it. That's such a great job. It is kind of awesome. Uh, yeah. I mean, just to say, wow, taxidermy. What an interesting <laughs> subject. I'm going to go learn about it. And I don't have values, of preconceived values. I mean, and I certainly am a very opinionated person. But again, the same thing where that as, a, as an individual, I'm very opinionated. I'm very rooted. I'm very, you know, I have these strong kind of connections and the way I live my life. But as a writer, you shut I'm that off. really open. I'm really open. And I'm, I really don't come with my ego. What I was going to say to be a little controversial, but I think women have an advantage in that regard. Um, number one, I think women are often um, more schooled in the the techniques of empathy than men necessarily are just culturally. But also maybe, I mean, maybe physiologically. Well, I think, you know, men, you know, I've done a lot of stories where I've spent a lot of time with women. And I think a woman spending time with a women, a woman for writing automatically is an easier dynamic. And when I spend time with men, I I feel like that's an easy dynamic because I'm the writer, they're my subject, as opposed to the other way around. There's a power dynamic. There's a power dynamic pre-existing in the writer subject relationship. So if you're a man and you begin with the social mantle of power, maybe you're interviewing another man. There's the kind of which one of us is the alpha you're interviewing a woman. There's always an element of discomfort just because women initially might feel some apprehension about man power, you know, and I I just think it's very different. I think for a a woman, you come in. I, I also think that, men have a harder time totally dropping their ego. I'm just going to go out there with this. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I do. I think that I enter stories 
with very little knowledge and I don't pretend to be an expert and I go do my reporting and my approach to it is to meet the people who know the story and to say, I don't know anything about this. Tell me. Tell me. I think a lot of men, I'll I'll couch this a little bit more subjectively, I think a lot of men have a harder time doing that and saying, gosh, I don't know a thing about this. Teach me. That's the, by the way, that's the premise of this entire show for me. This is why I'm talking to people. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, this is, I'm saying this is broad strokes. I could be totally wrong in every way. Well, but I think men, I think a lot of it, like you say, it's the ego or it's like this internalized sense of expectation that like, I have to come in and be competent and like, right. I think there's an insecurity there that maybe women don't have or it is not quite as pronounced in them. And there's a a willingness to admit I don't know. Actually, you just said a word that I think is really important. I think men are socialized to really be concerned about competence. Women are more socialized to be concerned about um, empathy. And the... The extremes of that, of course, become very problematic. And I'm not saying women don't desire competence and men don't desire empathy, but, and I can even make this more narrow and just say me, I never, I don't find it awkward to go into a reporting situation and say, God, I don't know anything about this. I, you know, I'm completely ignorant help me out. Um, it doesn't bother me. And I remember, you know, going down to do story about gospel music. And a couple of my colleagues at the New Yorker guys said to me, well, did you read this encyclopedia on gospel music? And did you, you know, study that thing about gospel music? And I said, actually, no. I said, you know, I really, I don't know anything about it except I like it. And so I'm going to go down there and hang out with gospel musicians and I figure they'll teach me. And, you know, it it came up over and over again that this gospel musician would say to me, well, you know, you know the five blind boys, don't you? And I'd say, no, actually I don't. Didn't bother me. And there are times where they probably thought, oh my God, this girl comes down here to do the story. She doesn't know anything, but it didn't bother me. It's like weakness is it's like weakness as strength, really. Yeah. Like you know, from the perspective of writing and reporting. It's like tell me, you know, that's what I'm here to yeah. do. Like and it goes back to the teaching paradigm that you were talking about earlier. Well, you can't be a student if you think you know the subject already. Right. You may pick up bits and pieces, but a, a true student has to have the humility of saying, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. I think this is really good to hear because I think um, both personally and I also think for listeners who might be considering uh, long-form journalism or writing a project where you know where they venture out and immerse themselves and have to learn, I think there can sometimes be the burden of expectation that, like, I've got to do all this research or I've got to get myself to a certain level before I can start. Mm-hmm. And that's a trap you can fall into. And I think what you're advocating is more of a, you know, dive in and have some humility approach. Yeah. I I also think that, um, the, you're being told all the time, write what you know. 
I would argue that certainly by the time you're writing, you should know the subject, but I think you should explore what you don't know and what interests you and what you're curious about and what, and the excitement of learning will then translate into the compelling tone of a story, which is, Oh my God, this is so interesting. You, you know, you, you got to read this because when I learned about it, I couldn't believe how interesting it was. And now I want you to experience it the way I experienced it. I, I don't really like writing about stuff I already know. And in fact, it, it's funny because I kind of came of age in the, um, in the era of memoir. And it, to me, it's such an, it's such a funny, awkward feeling where I think, Ooh, why would I want to write about myself? I mean, what is it that I, uh, you know, it's, there's no learning. There's no, there's no being a student. I mean, you would, could also say, well, that's not true. You can, and of course, great memoir writers do learn how to be a student of themselves. But for me, writing about anything that is already familiar to me, I think, ugh, why bother? I already know it. You already know it. And how could I possibly make it interesting? I I had a big challenge um, this year that this won't sound like that big of a challenge, but I had started working at a treadmill desk and one of my editors at the New Yorker said, Oh, write a story about it. And I thought, oh, I don't want to write. you know, to me it was like, I'm already doing it. What do I, what am I going to say about Wait, you it? You started working where at a treadmill desk? Yeah. I, I'm, I have a treadmill instead of a desk chair. Oh, okay. And so I'm, you know, and it's become very, uh, I don't want to say trendy because it's not trendy, but it's gaining a lot of popularity and a lot of attention. The idea that sitting is the new smoking. Well, right. Yeah. I read those articles and I'm like, Oh my God. I'm well, dying. and actually it's really <laughs> true. And I got it. So I got a treadmill desk and I was, I'd been working on it for, um, not a long time, like a month. And one of the editors at the magazine said, Oh, come on, you've got to write about it. You know, this is, people are so interested in it. And it was a whole different process for me to think, all right, how do I make writing about something I already know exciting for me? I mean, how do I get engaged in it? Um, because I'm missing the piece that I usually go through, which is, whoa, who knew there were taxidermists? You know, that's amazing. Or, I mean, that the discovery wasn't there right? because this was already something I knew. It didn't have that element of surprise. So I had to think, how can I approach this and make it, make it interesting for myself? How can I learn more about it so that I can write the story in a way that conveys that same feeling of excitement. And how did you do it? I mean, what was that? Was there a, like a, a linchpin where you were like, okay, this is how I, I figured well, it out. I, what I did is I thought, all right, well, it's not like I was born with a treadmill desk. So <laughs> why don't I just uh, like reel it back a little and think, okay, how did I end up with this treadmill desk? I mean, this did happen in a very specific way that I, suddenly found myself with this rather odd contraption. So kind of following the process of how I ended up with the desk was... There's no seat. 
it's pure. No. It's it's you're standing the whole time and, and it's moving. It's just like if you've ever been on a treadmill at the gym reading a magazine. Um, instead of that little stand, you actually have a whole desk surface and your computer and yeah. That's, and are you like? Is it moving? And you're walking while you're typing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're walking many, many miles a day while you're working. That's not a bad thing. No, it's awesome. Yeah, it's. I might have to look into that because I, I mean, like most writers, I'm sitting way too. Oh much. God, I. I mean, you. It's. I love it, and in fact, this summer because I was away from my treadmill, I thought, Jesus, I never realized how much I'm sitting. Because now that I am primarily walking, and when I get sick of walking, I turn the treadmill off, but I just continue standing. I'm, I've gotten so used to just being upright, and every now and again I'll sit down. But I think, I, you know, spending the summer sitting the way. I used to sit for a thousand years now feels really bad and like, ugh. does the standing in the, in the moving while you work, does it change the work at all? Does it invigorate you? Do you find that you're able to work for longer stretches or, you know, it was funny. I've done two stories since I've had the treadmill and both were eerily easy. They came out, you know, pretty easily without a lot of, drama and hair tearing and so forth. So I'm trying to figure out whether the fact that I was moving and that, I mean, look, the physiology is undeniable. I mean, there's more blood flowing. You're, you're energized. I have good thoughts when I walk. I'm a, I'm a huge walker. Like I walk, you know, a couple miles pretty much well, there, That's absolutely scientifically true that walking people tend to be more creative, more collaborative. I mean, there are all sorts of studies that show that walking it has a huge effect on the way you're thinking and processing. I also, like a lot of writers, I'm sure, would have that mid-afternoon slump right. of like, like two, oh three, my two or three God. o'clock. I'm like, uh, can I, is, I have to have 12 more cups of coffee. I'm going to just put my head down for this one right. tiny little second. <laughs> I'll have another Diet Coke. I'll have, uh, what can I do? And just that slump, which was, I, it's the worst. Mm. I still think, you know, your biorhythms, um, tend to, you know, cycle down in the late afternoon and most people get kind of sleepy and, but when you're moving that, oh my God, a pile of bricks just fell on my head, doesn't feel the same. Right. You feel, because you're, you're out. I mean, you're not out, you're in and you're, but you're walking. It helps. So I'd like to think that all of my writing from here on out will be extremely easily accomplished because something is happening. <laughs> this could I'm be a breakthrough. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the key. Because I mean, let's be honest: there aren't that many like truly new developments in the art of writing uh, going back. But I think a treadmill desk is yeah is truly new. Yeah, you know? oh, it is. I, it'll be interesting when I start working on my book, in which the management of lots of paper is always tricky when you're writing a book or even just a very long piece and the treadmill desk, um, 
you don't feel, first of all, the desks themselves don't have a lot of surface, but all, I mean, that's changeable by simply figuring out a way to have more desk surface. They just, the way, the ones that are manufactured now tend to be small, and I suspect it's the target audience is people who mainly just work on their computer, and they don't have lots of documents and paper around oh my god and i'm now picturing like a like a, a treadmill like that's the width of a room it's like really wide and then you have a desk that stretches the whole length so you can like move down the treadmill oh my god <laughs> i hadn't even thought of that that's so cool or like you know or you could have like a u-shaped you know i don't know if that would quite work. yeah well actually a u-shaped desk although you can't really turn while you're walking but i'm gonna get um i'm just finishing um, building a new office at my house and I'm going to have a big L-shaped desk where the treadmill will obviously just be, you know, occupy the normal width of a treadmill. But at a glance, I can see a lot more stuff. Right. And that that's the way. And also, I think the other solution for me is to have a big... Um, uh, bulletin board in, in front. front of me and beside me to so I can also hang a lot of stuff because the main thing is at a desk you can kind of be sw- you know swiveling around right on a treadmill you can't really do that so things being hung up in front of you up at eye level would be better so and, we'll see and and do you ever like when you're in the midst of writing and let's say things are going really well and you're on a roll do you like turn the speed up on the treadmill? <laughs> I do, but they are a treadmill for treadmills that are specifically made for treadmill desks. Um, they don't go that fast. They don't go that fast. Okay. And, you know, they're, they have a heavy duty motor because they run for hours and hours all day long, but they don't go. I think their top speed is. Um, like what, like a 10 minute mile or something? Yeah. In that, it's just fun. Not, it's not fun to quite. imagine. It's fun to imagine you sprinting and typing as things are going well. I know. People always, <laughs> when I wrote the story, people were baffled and were saying to me, "But when you're running," and I said, "Well, you're not running. You're walking. <laughs> you're walking. You're not running. Nobody can type while they're running." And the point is that you're upright and moving and blood and, is blood is flowing and it's not yeah like so killing you, you yeah yeah exactly and you're not like short of breath you're walking right. but it's i mean it's a bizarre it's bizarre unless you appreciate the fact that sitting in front of a computer is way more bizarre yeah and that walking, and also relatively new in human history yeah definitely i mean the guy who i interviewed is sort of um came up with the walking desk notion was pointing out that, you know, humans always walked as part of their work. They were out in the field, you know, doing farming or walking to town to get provisions and that we always walked a lot and that sitting is the more bizarre. I mean, the fact that people might sit literally I mean, he started pointing out, you know, you wake up in the morning, you sit at breakfast, 
you then sit in front of your computer, then you sit and watch a movie, you sit and it's like, oh uh, my yeah. God, it's horrible. I and want it, like it, a movie theater full of treadmills, you know, just... <laughs> yeah. And I can see, I'm, I was like envisioning like cubicle farms with treadmills in them. Like that. Well, would... actually, a, a number of companies now are offering a, at least a standing desk as an option. And... I feel bad that we're sitting here talking. Well, I know. You can tell. I'm like, my back is killing me from having nothing to do with sitting and talking to you. But that would change I think the dynamic. I've been sitting too much. Um, but companies are offering, st- treadmills are expensive for a company to offer a standard. But a lot of companies are offering a standing desk as an option. And apparently, even just standing as opposed to sitting for at least some of the hours a day that you normally sit is vastly better for you than sitting. I'm, get, I'm definitely going to look into a treadmill. I really you should. You know what? I sold a lot of them no, I'm, through. I mean, I'm mentally purchasing I've had right so now. many people email me and say, can you just tell me the, the name and the model? Cause I'm going to order one. And I thought, oh my God, if I'd only known that I had this much power <laughs> right. and also, I mean, where's my kickback? No kidding. You should be getting a percentage on this. I, I honestly, there I should mean, be a I can Susan Orlean all, model, you know, I, really where's my sponsorship <laughs> with lifespan. Jeez. I'm waiting. So, okay. So I, you know, we're almost up here, but I, before I let you go, uh, we didn't get to talk about Boston. Did anything? I mean, I know you. We talked about Oregon and your development and how you got started early writing actual stories. You then went to Boston prior right. to the New Yorker. Right. Was there any other significant pivot or something that happened in your career that you think really um, was critical to your development, or was it kind of more the same? More feature stories, more just like doing the work and getting words on the page, and yeah, um, it's a, a, num- a number of different things. I think um, I got a book contract pretty early on in my career. And I think learning to figure that out and really doing it on my own was a, 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 a huge challenge and a gigantic leap for me feeling like I'm a writer. I'm, right. I'm telling, I'm telling stories. Um, and that was, I mean, it was, a rather overwhelming responsibility that I probably wasn't quite prepared for, but I, I certainly think that writing a book is, it is having your first baby in a sense that, um, it's so funny how many, I mean, I compare, I've used the childbirth metaphor. It's a very apt metaphor for writing a book. It really is. (laughs) In fact, I just got a, a book from, um, a, really hilarious uh, comic who lives here in Los Angeles who kept saying, look at my baby. It's, it's not, <laughs> it's not quite eight pounds, but it's, it was, you almost want to show people pictures of it on your phone. It's almost yeah, to that level. Yeah. Right? Look, here it is. Um, I guess, you know, to me, it's been one foot in front of the other and there've been some wonderful moments where, you know, the first time I had a story in a, in a national publication as opposed to a local one. And, you know, the moment that that happened where I thought, wow, this is reaching people. This is a big deal. I mean, I, I'm talking to a lot of people. That's 
wild. Yeah. Um, and, and also talking to people about subject matter that I imagine you probably didn't conceive, at least at the outset, would be that resonant. I mean, I right. sometimes you go in and you're like, this is going to be resonant. Sometimes you go in and you're like, well, this is interesting to me. And then right. do you find yourself surprised when like everyone's responding to this? Totally surprised. But you know what? This is where these are my two riffs lately. Um, one is the student and teacher kind of um, hybrid experience of being a writer. But I also think that it's all about storytelling. There's some stories out there that are just great stories because they're meaningful and significant and dramatic. And, but most of what we think of as great stories in terms of subject are great tellings of story of what I mean is it's the, it's the telling of it. It's the, it's the storytellers engagement and enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, how many news stories are there in the world? There are no news stories. I mean, we're, we're, we're always just picking up rocks and looking at what's underneath them. And some, sometimes what's underneath them is really big and you know, immediately that lots of people will be interested. And sometimes it's something very small, but your own, your own engagement in it, your own excitement about learning it and feeling that you're seeing within it great things. That's what ends up turning it into the story that people that resonates. Well, and I think it's, it's like enthusiasm is contagious. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah. And I think that, you know, I've never written a story that at the outset I thought, whoa, this is huge. I mean, it just, I, I'm not attracted to stories that I think initially strike me or anybody as huge. What's huge is my excitement and desire to know the story. When I look at the orchid thief and I, I was just going to think say. <laughs> of, you know, talk about, and I'm, I mean, I remember going in and talking to my publisher and saying, you know, I, I know this sounds weird, but I just, I'm done. I, it's a book. I know this is a book. I'd already written a piece for the New Yorker on the subject. And you would think even a New Yorker piece was a stretch with a story that seems so, you know, odd and slight and, I just said, oh my God, it's a book. It's, I mean, it's, I've got to do it as a book. I was lucky. I had an editor who said, I don't totally understand it, but you clearly are very excited about it. It's, and I'm not trying to diminish it because obviously I was really excited about it, but on the page, a story about a guy, a weird guy who stole some, flowers a great character you know it's just not on the face of it not a big story but yes he was a great character and you had the i mean you saw that i mean you might, that must have been central to your thinking that it was a book right well partly you know he drove me crazy and in a funny way that emotion which isn't the you know i didn't think whoa he's so awesome he's such a great character i thought oh he's so annoying but I kind of have to, you know, hang with him for for the book to work. And it's funny because that 
push me, pull you feeling constantly was actually part of what made him such an interesting character. He drove me crazy, but he was fascinating. Um, nope. You know, it, it, it's the case with most stories or books that I've read that I've loved. Again, the uh, the elevator pitch is pretty like, huh? That doesn't sound that interesting. But the telling of it, the the experience of a storyteller embracing you and saying, I want to tell you this amazing story. That's what it's about. Yeah. Well, and you know, two things strike me. Like one is that at two pivotal moments in your career, uh, the first being when you started out in Portland, um, where you went and you said, I had I have to have this job with like all this great enthusiasm and like authenticity. You said what you wanted and you said it, um, uh, really directly yeah. and with force. And then secondly, uh, with the Orchid Thief, talking to your editor, who was a little bit in doubt, saying this is a book with certainty, you know, following that and having uh, confidence in your own instincts yeah. is important. And it's, and it's amazing what can happen, I think, um, when you have that kind of genuine emotion in you uh, and you say what you want. Yeah. Well, I think you just said a word that's really critical, which is confidence. Um. If you look at visual art, a lot of times you think, I, I could do that. I see exactly how it was made, and I could do that. But I didn't. And I wouldn't have the confidence to say, I'm going to Jackson Pollock style, throw paint on a canvas and say, that's art. I don't think writing is different in that sense. The confidence is essential. You you simply can't be a writer. It would be almost like getting up on a stage and and having an audience and then saying, "Oh, I don't know. Never. <laughs> I mean, I sort of this might be interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure." As opposed to getting up on stage and saying, "I have a Great story. It to gets tell back you. to the, the performative aspect of teaching. Yeah, you, you know your students are never going to listen if you get up there and you're knock kneed and you know. And and not only confidence in the material, confidence in yourself, confidence in your entitlement to teach. You know that that's the you know some of it is. Im- hardwired, you know, Joan Didion makes her sentences a certain way because that's who she is. That's how she sees the world. That's the vocabulary she knows. That's the way she thinks to describe something. That's just her. But to say, I'm a storyteller, I'm Joan Didion, I'm going to write about the uh, Haight-Ashbury and Anybody could go do it, anyone. But I'm doing it. She I'm did it. that storyteller, and I'm maybe someone else will do it too. That's not my concern. My concern is that I want to tell this story. But you know, and and I, I said there were two things that struck me. The first being that you know at those two pivotal moments, you, or you know, and not that those are the only two, but at two pivotal moments, you spoke up. And then the second one, with respect to the orchid thief and its subject matter, and other things that you've pursued. Uh, from a subject matter standpoint is that, like you said, you didn't pursue like the big hot story that was making news. And I think sometimes writers 
can kind of chase that light because they think it's going to lead to readership or money or whatever, a publishing deal. I got to tell this story because this is a story that everyone's interested in right now. But by working against the grain and having a real acute awareness of what's really compelling to you and maybe having like a unique sensibility, you carve out some territory of your own. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing to add into that is you have to have the good fortune of finding editors or publications who will say, okay, um, follow that, that story. That's not the big hot story. And this is the question that people raise to me all the time, which is easy for you. You write for the New Yorker and they let you follow those odd stories or, you know, not odd. I don't even like saying that my stories are odd, but they are not unexpected. They're oblique. Um, and it's true that you can't necessarily make that happen. But I didn't come out of the womb doing those kinds of stories either. I worked hard doing stories that made sense to editors to till I got to a point where I could say, okay, now I have this idea that's a little bit more oblique. Give me a shot at it. Well, the confidence works two ways. Yeah. You've got to have confidence in yourself, but it also, I mean, at a certain level, if you want to reach as many readers as you're reaching, you need the confidence of an editor or a publisher who's going to say, okay, we're letting go of the leash, go do your thing, and we trust you. And now, while there are many more opportunities and platforms where you can say, look, I don't need an editor, I don't need a publication, but unless you have some way of attracting readers that's a tricky i mean it's wonderful because you could say look i don't care if i get 20 people reading this i'm desperate to do the story and i'm going to self-publish it you know amazon uh, kindle single or what have you and there are those opportunities much the way that you could have run something off in a xerox machine and passed it out you know as a pamphlet i mean that's the great tradition of of American letters was printing pamphlets and handing them out. So there's always that opportunity to just say, screw it. I'm going to do this because I'm dying to do it. And I can't get someone to, to underwrite me. So I'm going to do it for myself. But, and I think there are more and more and more opportunities for that. You still have to be a bit of a business person too. And they, all right, well, sure. But I don't want to just, run off 20 mimeograph copies of this, how do I get it out there in the world? It's certainly easier to do that if you're doing it for a magazine or, a, you know, where you have the, the context um, that's going to bring you readers. But I still think this is a golden moment for autonomy. Um, and quality, I mean, ultimately, I think... And this is a little bit idealistic, but if you write something that is really, really good, you know, it might not find a million readers right out of the gate, but it's going to, I have faith in that. I do too. I really do. I think writing is the ultimate meritocracy. And if you write something that's truly terrific, it just seems to me that someone is going to notice it and... And help 
um, get it out there or share it with a friend. Yeah. You know, in that process, then it starts to, I mean, you, you see it happen on the internet. Things become sensations, uh, from quiet little corners, mm-hmm. you know, so that possibility exists. But, um, I, I just hope that all of the legwork and expense that goes into long form journalism, um, can be done, you know, because I think like, there's so many short snippets and surface level reporting and so much of that static on the internet that I find it. And I'm, I mean, I think a lot of people, I feel like this is what's trending now, um, to use like an internet term, but I really do feel, feel like people are hungry for that substance. Yeah. And I feel like people are like, okay, I, you know, I've been swimming in static for the past three years. I've seen it just continue to grow and grow and grow. It's like, I need to cut the noise down. I want something that's quality. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely believe that. I think, um, you know, in the last year or two, you've seen long forms pop up, uh, the Atavis byliner that it's, um, I don't think it's any accident that these, you know, Kindle singles, they're all about longer in-depth leisurely studies of things. Um, and you know, it, it may be that we've had our fill with Twitter and, um, you know, news flash information for the quick, short bursts and that people really, really love getting absorbed in a subject and, and they just haven't really had a chance to have them except for the New Yorker and the Atlantic, you know, just... In the last decade, the economics of it have made it very tough. That's right. And now that's sort of being turned upside down because of electronic publishing making, as I said, as we began, the issue of length in terms of paying for pages is no longer a problem. Right. So, okay, Uh, before I let you go, Meryl Streep, I have to ask... The, the movie, all of that stuff, an unusual experience for a journalist yes. to be portrayed by like, I think, you know, like one of the great, I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody argues one of the great actors uh, ever. It, absolutely. And I have to say, I think it's for many people, one of their favorite Meryl Streep performances because it was just completely, um, She's funny. She's funny, and she it's just—it's a very instead of being very grand, which she is called upon to be very often. She was just funny and loose, and uh, it was great. And you know, for me, I—I I had no idea how they would make that book into a movie, and I thought, you guys are crazy. This will never be make any sense as a movie. Well, who could have ever imagined? That it would turn out well, and to fa- have it fall in the hands of such a gifted screenwriter. Yeah, I'm I mean, that so was lucky. Just amazing good fortune, and it, it was a completely good experience for me. Did it change anything about your? I mean, obviously, it raised your profile some. Did yeah. it change the way, like perception in the business, perception from readers? Well, in the beginning, I was nervous that it would be harder for me to be that invisible person Um, because, you know, the New Yorker has a large readership, but it's still a very specific readership. Right. And a lot of the people I write about do not get the New Yorker and 
don't know who I am within that context maybe, at all. Maybe you haven't seen adaptation. Uh, well, what I was going to say is that movies, even the most minor movie, is seen by way more people than, you know, The New Yorker has a circulation of about a million. A movie that is moderately successful, let alone quite successful, has many, many, many times more than a million viewers. Right. So I thought, wow, you know, there, there's a much higher likelihood that people now will connect the dots and figure out, oh, she's that person, as opposed to just, I don't know, some writer called me. And I, so I was worried about it. But it it has not been a problem. I definitely know that more people, when I call them, know who I am. That doesn't, um, that doesn't necessarily hurt. Might, you might get no. it, your call answered more. Yeah, you know. yeah. But I just was thought, oh, you know, this is going to sort of change things. But um, but it's a good, A, it's a good movie. B, you get played by Meryl Streep. Who could uh, yeah, want more? Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I have no complaints. None. None uh, whatsoever. And did you get to sit on the set or anything? Were you, did you participate or at least get to I, witness the, the production? Yeah, I mean, I came um, once or twice as they were filming and consulted uh, in the beginning a lot with Spike Jones and with the costume uh, designer. And But Mer- did Meryl study you? Did she like... No, she was- didn't. Okay. She decided that she wanted to kind of create the character... She was sort of based it on both the book and then a friend of hers who's a journalist, and she she didn't want to have it appear to be a an impersonation. Right. And so my particular habits aren't sort of meaningful in the context of the story, and also. Um, he takes she, he takes great liberty also. I yeah, mean, you know. I mean, I was going to say it, it becomes so much not me and the fact that she's older than me. So it wasn't as if they were trying, okay, how can we make this seem exactly like Susan? And, you know, obviously the book is quite different from the movie. Well, sure. You know, but I can almost like as a writer, like, I just think that's a very interesting and ultimately it, it obviously worked out. But by Charlie, like that decision to just kind of break out. Yeah. That must have been like the only way to do it. And it also... Yeah, definitely. It, it probably made the viewing experience or just like the experience of knowing it's out there in the public realm maybe a little bit more comfortable because of that liberty. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, I think that if it had been more explicitly faithful right. to the book and to my character, my actual character... It would have been much more uncomfortable if they had tried to make Meryl Streep look like me. I mean, when they came, actually the costume designer came and went through my wardrobe and then he finally said to me, you know what, I can't really use any of this because you don't dress the way people think a journalist would dress. So we're going to, I'm just, you know, have to, we're just going to create it with a blank slate and dress her the way that we think that people would expect a writer would dress. And it was hilarious because when she first comes on screen, I was with a friend at one of the many viewings that I have had of it who said to me, Oh my God, you would never wear that. And I said, I I know, I know. 
So talk about, I mean, last question. Did you go to the premiere? Yeah. Was that the first time you saw the film? Oh, no. Okay, so you saw it before. Yeah. So talk about the first time you saw it. Did you did you like it? Was it surreal or it was totally surreal? In fact, um, it was a very rough cut. So not being used to seeing rough cuts, that was also strange because the color was terrible and they didn't have a soundtrack in, and you know it was very early on and it was totally surreal. So all I remember is walking out and thinking, "Oh my god, that's <laughs> like what? That is." really nuts and you know discouraging because i thought this is horrible um and then obviously the next time i saw it they'd made huge you know improvements and it was already at that point kind of locked and well editing matters in film just as it does in writing yes exactly well this has been so fun i feel like i could keep talking to you for hours and it's been really um instructive and i thank you for taking the time my pleasure this is Great for me, too. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Susan Orlean. Go get her books, Rin Tin Tin, The Orchid Thief, The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup. Look for her stuff in The New Yorker magazine. Uh, You can find her online at SusanOrlean.com. She's on the Twitter where her handle is at Susan Orlean. And you can also find her on Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out Kill Rockstars. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. If you haven't done that already, the app itself is free. Uh, okay, so 200, more than 200 uh, episodes, more than, or no, 200 episodes exactly, more than 200 hours of programming. I sometimes wonder, like, what's going to become of this? Who, who's going to be listening to these, uh, if anyone, many years into the future? Is that going to happen? Is there any lasting value for, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, and I, do, I certainly don't want to sound uh, ridiculous. I just wonder, you know, like, wh- what is this all? What is the point? I like to think these conversations hold value, uh, but like all things, this too is ephemeral and will almost certainly be forgotten and left to wither into dust like a head of cabbage forgotten in an empty field. Please remember that Shakespeare became a grandfather at age 43 and that Wittgenstein almost never wore a necktie. That's it for now. Thanks again, you guys, for sticking with me for the past two years. Uh, Thanks as well for spreading the word about the program. Thanks for the emails, the messages, the tweets. I am uh, deeply grateful for your kind support. That's all for now. I'll be back again in a few days with another conversation with another uh, writerly human being. And I look forward to seeing what happens in, you know, in year three. Or to be a bit more precise, I look forward to hearing what happens in year number three. I don't know what's going to happen. If you have any predictions about what's going to happen in year three, please let me know. Otherwise, uh...